Chapter Nine of the Harbor of Doubt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Harbor of Doubt by Frank Williams. Chapter Nine, On the Course. All dories aboard. All hands set topsails. Jimmy Thomas, ease your mainsheet. Now, boys, all together. Yo, sway em flat. Yo, once more. Yo, fine. Stand by to set balloon jib. It was broad daylight, and the early sun lighted the newly painted, slanting deck of the charming lass as she snored through the gentle sea. On every side the dark gray expanse stretched unbroken to the horizon, except on the starboard bow. There a long gray flatness separated itself from the horizon, the coast of southern Nova Scotia. There was a favorable following wind, and the clean new schooner seemed to express her joy at being again in her element by leaping across the choppy waves like a live thing. While the crew of ten leaped to the orders, Code Schofield stood calmly at the wheel, easing her on her course so as to give them the least trouble. Under the vociferous bellow of Pete Ellenwood, the crew were working miracles in swiftness and organization. The sun had been up two hours, and now, as Schofield glanced back at the wake that foamed and bubbled behind them, his eyes fell upon the white sails of a vessel far astern. Even at the distance it was plain that she was of schooner rig and probably a fisherman. "'Wonder who she is?' asked Code, pointing her out to Ellenwood. "'Don't know. Thought perhaps you'd seen her before, Skipper. I've had my eye on her for an hour. Fisherman, likely. You'll see him in all directions every day afore we're through.' The explanation was simple and obvious and it satisfied Schofield. He promptly forgot her, as did everyone else aboard the lass. And reason enough. The cook, sticking his head out of the galley, bawled, "'Mug up! First table!' And the first table made a rush below. When the five men sat down, it was the first time they had been able to relax since the evening before, when, without lights, and under headsails only, the charming lass had stolen out between the reefs of Freekirk Head to sea. "'Well, boys, I calculate we're safe,' ejaculated Ellenwood with great satisfaction. "'The lass is doing her ten knots steady, and I guess we'll have left Cape Sable astern before the sleepy heads at home find out what's become of us.' "'You saved the day, Pete.' If it hadn't been for you, I would never have got beyond St. John's. It was Code who spoke. And you pretty near spoiled what I did do, rumbled Pete. How's that? interrupted Thomas interestedly. I don't know everything that happened to you fellers. I was busy at the time giving a friend of ours a joy ride. Tell me about it. It wasn't me that nearly broke up the show, Pete protested Code. It was Mother. Of course, when Jimmy was taking her over to Castalia in his dory, he told her what was in the wind. 
They found me at the Pembroke place, and we all went into Pembroke's ice house, where I was to stay until after dark. Then Ma started in to find out everything. She allowed it wasn't honorable for me to run away when the officer or lawyer was after me. She said it proved that I was guilty, and thought I ought to stay and be served with this paper. If I wasn't guilty of anything, it could be proven easily enough, she said. Poor, honest mother. She forgot that the whole matter would take weeks, if not months, and that all that time I would be idle and discontented and spending most of my time before boards of inquiry. I suppose it will look queer to a lot of people at the head because I've gone. They'll say right off, just as we thought, all this talk that has been going around is true, and put me down for a criminal that ought to go to jail. That's what Mother said, and the worst part of leaving her now is that she will have to stay and face the talk, and the looks that are worse than talk. But, Jimmy, I couldn't do it. Grande Mignon is in too bad a hole. She needs every man who owns a schooner or a sloop or a dory to go out and catch fish and bring em home. The old island's got her back against the wall, and I felt that when all the trouble and danger were over for her, I would go to St. John's and let those people try and prove their case. They can't prove anything, but that doesn't say they won't get a judgment. I'm poor and unknown and ignorant of law. The company is a big corporation with lawyers and plenty of money. If somebody there is after me, I haven't a chance, and they will gouge me for all they can get. You, Jimmy, and Pete know that this is so, and it was for all these reasons that I wouldn't stand my ground and let that feller serve me. Ma is dependent on me, and when I have sold fifteen hundred crinals of fish, she will have enough to carry her along until that trouble is over. So I'm going out after the fifteen hundred kennels. Now, that's my story. We've heard Jimmy's. But how did you manage everything so well, Pete? Ellenwood was flattered and coughed violently over the last of his vittles. Hey! yelled some hungry member of the second half. If you fellers eat any more, you'll sink the ship. Get up out of there and give your betters a chance. Ellenwood rolled a forbidding eye toward the companionway. Some clam spitter on deck don't seem to know that in this here packet the youth and beauty is always considered first, he rumbled ominously. No reply being forthcoming, he turned to Code. When old Bige Tanner come to me shaking like a leaf and said there was a feller on the steamer that would attach your schooner and all ye had because of some business about the sinking of the old May, I says to myself, says I, Pete, I says, we don't allow nothing like that to spoil our cruise and keep the skipper ashore. Now, Mignon isn't very big, and I knew he would get you in a day or two if you didn't go back into the forest and hide. But I calculated you wouldn't want to do that, and so I figured the only way to beat that lawyer was to fool him before he got fair started on his search. I knowed you was in Castalia, 
and so I thought your mother better get you some clothes and bring them there. I found out that Nat Burns had taken the feller to Miss Shannon's boarding house, and knowing that Jimmy was living there, I got an idea. Jimmy's told about that already. The feller bit, and that was the end of him. But that wasn't the worst of it. I knew we had to get out the same evening if we was to get out at all. So what did I do but get Bill Rockwell here to hitch up the big double buckboard and go out after the five men that weren't on the job? He had to drive clear to Great Harbor for one, but he got back with all hands about seven o'clock. Everybody in town was at supper and didn't see us when we clum aboard the lass. When it was pitch black, we cast off the lines, and she drifted out on the ebb tide, which just there runs easy a knot and a half. Then we got up our headsails so as to get steerage way on her, and bless my soul if the blocks made a creak. Might have been pulling silk thread through a fur mitten for all the noise. I was afraid for a minute that the flash of swallowtail light would catch her topmasts but it didn't, and after an hour we were outside and laying in sixteen fathom off Big Duck. The tide there runs three knot, and with our headsails and the light air of wind we just managed to hold her even. Of course, you fellers know the rest. As soon as Jimmy landed his passenger on Long Island, he came out and straight south to where we was. I had told Jimmy to tell Code in the afternoon where to meet us, and so, when it was black enough, the skipper got into his motor dory and came out too. When they climbed aboard, we got up sail and laid a southwest course to round Nova Scotia, and here we are, nearing Cape Race already, and dumb proud of ourselves if I do say it. Proud of you, Pete, you old fox said Schofield, getting up from the table with a sigh of immense relief. "'Come on, let the second half in.' "'All right, Skipper,' said Pete, rising to his great height and wiping his mouth with the back of his huge hand. "'But wait, I almost forgot this.' He unpinned the pocket of his waistcoat and drew forth the flimsy sheet of paper that he had picked up when Templeton had mistakenly tried to serve him. Briefly, he told the skipper its history and handed it to him. Schofield's eyes opened wide as he saw that the paper was that of the Dominion Cable Office in Freekirk Head, and he read, To A. Templeton, Marine Insurance Company, St. John's, New Brunswick. Come at once with summons for Cody Albert Schofield and attachment for schooner Charming Lass, as per former arrangements. Burnett. For a moment the signature puzzled him, and Ellenwood, grinning, stood watching his puzzled efforts to solve it. Skipper, if it was a mule it would kick you in the face, he remarked. If you can't see Nat Burns in that, I can. And now you've got an idea just who's at the bottom of this thing. Code Schofield went aft to his cabin companionway and prepared to go below and open his log. Kent took the wheel, 
and Ellenwood lurched about with a critical eye upon the lashings, sheets, and general appearance of the deck. Schofield, remembering the schooner that had attracted his eye before, looked astern for her. She had gained rapidly upon them in the half-hour he had been below. Now he could see her graceful black hull, the shadows in the great sails, and the tiny men here and there upon her deck. "'What a sailor!' he cried in involuntary admiration. "'She must be an American!' It was clear that the other schooner, even in that moderate breeze, must be making the better side of twelve knots. Schofield gave her a final admiring glance and went below. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline